We would like to thank one of our sponsors of the podcast, Leader Equine. Based in Victoria, Australia, Leader Equine can assist with all your horse care needs. They distribute leading global brands including Horseware Island, TRM, PS of Sweden, Goodbye Flies and Epona Grooming. Leader Equine have an array of products to help with all elements of horse care. The Horseware Ice Vibe and Rambo Ionic products are perfect for supporting the recovery of competition horses. Their TRM range includes everything from joint supplements, digestive supplements and much more. All tried, tested and effective. Welcome to another episode of the Equestrian Hub podcast. Tonight's guest, I have Luke Thomas. Welcome, Luke. G'day, Charlie. How are you doing? Good, mate. It's been quite a journey getting you on tonight. I'm uh, quite often when I line up an interview with a guest, you know, we'll talk once or maybe a bit over text. And I feel like we've had about five or six conversations along the way, and we ended up we end up just talking about horses the whole time. And then we forget to, um, you know, line up an interview. So I'm glad we, I've nailed you down. Yeah, yeah, finally. It's um, a bit of flooding always. We'll get in the road of that. So as, as we're sitting here and it's just torrential rain down on the south coast here today, which was unexpected. I was out trimming my a few of my ponies and next minute down it came. And I thought, where did this come from? And I looked at the app and it's got 40 to 80 mil predicted. And I thought, okay. Batten down the hatches. Here she comes. Yeah, it's the wet. The weather far out. It's certainly been a bit wet. And I guess I, I called you earlier, and uh, you said you said you were underneath the back leg of a horse while you're trimming. And I'm guessing that's in the do as I say, not do as I do category of uh, horsemanship at your clinics. Oh, look, no. I think it's important to be to multitask. If you can hold that phone with your, you know, with your shoulder while you're trimming the horse, we're we're busy and important people, and we can't be held up by, by uh, anything at all. You know, we've got things to do and people to see, places that, to go, and in in demand. In the yes, yes. So you're based down the south coast at the moment. Where did you grow up, and how did were your family into horses? Yeah, look, I grew up just a little north of where I'm at. I'm down near Bega. I'm at a place called uh, Korma, um, and I grew up at Milton, and the family had some cattle properties there, um, and my uncle got me into horses, I think. Um, he had he had a great old horse that he um, used to ride around, four white feet and a big, big blaze and used to muster the cattle on it and he'd be in his gumboots and shorts elbows out and um a chaff bag as a saddlecloth and um he uh yeah he, he was uh really got along well with that old horse because it was a real haunted horse no one else could catch it no one could get near it and it was just real haunted and uh when i was seven i yeah, was fortunate enough to have been bought a pony at Christmas, and uh, used to help Uncle. And it was a it was a bronc of a pony, and uh, the amount of times that it threw me off was was uh, yeah, uncountable. I remember galloping home from the back paddock under its neck, with my, hanging on like a monkey, with my arms and legs wrapped around its neck underneath it, having gone over the front of the saddle, and it's just took off for home and. Uh, so anyway, yeah, um, the early 
early horse experience came with helping uncle on the farm. But Milton was a great town for horses and horse people. And um, you'd know Marie Hewitt. Marie was from Milton and, and her parents, we'll call them Mr. and Mrs. Hewitt because they deserve so much respect. They ran the pony club there. And um, there was so many people on horses. I remember going to pony club along Matron Porter Drive between Milton and Mollymook. And there'd be 10 and 15 kids in front of you and behind riding to Pony Club, you know. And it was huge. And as we got older, um, we'd go riding out into the bush up over the escarpment and back down the jailhouse gap, which was just one of those treacherous looking trails with a sheer cliff on one side and same on the other. And there'd be 30 farmers, you know, off for a weekend with, with, um, saddlebags full of green ginger wine and you know every all the farmers rode and there was horses everywhere it was a great place to grow up my next door neighbor was a racehorse trainer the other guy in front of me was a farrier the fella behind me was a horse breaker there was no choice you know or I could have been a surfer but I lived on the wrong side of the highway <laughs> on, on the western side of the highway Do you yeah, ever back and wonder how you survived how you still here after hanging on to the under the neck of a gallop those galloping little ponies yeah well it wasn't just that um because i i went to um i started work when I, I left school very early and i got a pretty good start with um a horse breaker if we can use that term because um, that's a term he always referred to himself as was uh and his name was harry Meyer. Harry Meyer was the fella to send your horse to if you'd paid top dollar for it as a galloper. And uh, when I was just a young bloke, I went to work for Harry, and he was um, a, an incredible horseman, just had a wonderful eye for them and could tell you things. You know, you'd look at a horse and go, was that thing going to go, you know, is that, that horse going to gallop he'd say no it's it's stifles are turned in and i'd say well what's wrong with that and he says well as it comes forward in its motion in its action the stifles will be hitting it under the stomach he, he said you need stifles that are turned out for a galloper that one won't, won't gallop and and he knew his onions because he, he uh broke in seven melbourne cup winners amongst all the other horses that he that he handled which was something like sixteen thousand gallopers came through harry's hands Oh, and yeah. right up until he was 84, he was still mouthing the horses on Guri stud. You know, right. so yeah. He, how old? How young were you when you when you started working there? Oh, I just turned 15, and um, we we're up at Gundawang Stud at, at Golgong, and Harry was there with his mate Maxie Crockett, and um, we had some of the best horses. I know we had the first million dollar galloper in Australia that we started there. And um, yeah, we, you know, like cattle, there was a lot of horses in work there. And I think typically a lot of people have come up through the thoroughbred industry, whether it's in yielding barns or, or breaking in stables like we did. And um it's a good start, I think. It's a you know you get exposed to a lot of horses and you get your hours up, 
and that's important and that's something that's lacking in the horse industry these days whether it's just your recreational riders or whoever it is you you just need to get your your hours up with around horses and and uh so that was a great opportunity to do that um harry had a mentor and harry's mentor was a fella called jimmy wilton and jim wilton was quite a character uh, quite well known as a horseman back in the 50s and 60s and he had been a, a station breaker he broke in horses on cattle stations and did that for 20 years and he broke he wrote a book called the horse and his education and once he'd finished his um once he'd finished his horse breaking career ran a riding school at Kashula, western sydney mm-hmm. and yeah and put it you know and had a lot of people go through that riding school and they reckon that they'd be um trail rides going out with you know 50 horses and 50 people on horses and he'd have you riding very incredibly long and if there was any trouble he'd just whistle and these horses would stop all all 50 would just stop you know <laughs> and uh he also took his horses on the road his trick horses and he went to all the shows all over all over australia and new zealand um took the took his trick horses over to new zealand and those horses did amazing things like um they would carry a uh he he, he they jump at liberty in pairs over olympic jumps and um he'd put a dummy on the jump on the one of the horses the dummy would fall off he'd have one horse pick the dummy up in its teeth carry it to the stretcher put the rider put the dummy in the stretcher three other horses had come and pick that stretcher up and carry the the supposed fallen rider out of the arena um he taught horses to walk on their knees and and um stand on poles and just amazing stuff and it's still it's available it's jimmy wilton is is Mm. what goes under on youtube and it's well worth a look and he had Um, dogs well i've seen him have dogs with the he had trained dogs to then jump up on top of the horses while they know they're stuck well yeah absolutely had all these um white alsatian dogs that he trained to do all sorts of tricks so he was a bit of a hero to mine because harry was always a hero of mine harry was always uh, you know talking about jim and saying how amazing he was and uh, so i read the book and we went and met him a few times and he started me smoking when i was about 15 he said harry <laughs> tells me you're going to be a horse breaker i said oh he said uh, if you're going to be a horse breaker mate you've got to learn to smoke he says because uh, there's going to be times you just need to sit up on that top rail of that fence and have a cigarette and you calm down the horse comes down and then you get back to it so i was there i was <laughs> turning greens puffing on one of jimmy wilton's winnie reds he had the black fingers from the nicotine oh. <laughs> and uh thankfully i've given that away many years ago but uh yeah that was the start of it uh but jim was a station breaker and so being a bit of a hero of mine i went okay i want to be a station breaker too um and so after i think three years off and on working with harry i headed north and started breaking in horses on cattle stations 
and I did that for 14 years. I did 14 trips up into the top end, breaking in horses on stations. And so that was you left you left working for Harry, and then you pretty much uh, when when you went up to the station, you were the main you were the main breaker, the head breaker. Yeah, yeah. What, first place. Yeah. What was the what was the thing? You know, did you feel a bit out of depth that first year, or what? What was the biggest, the steepest learning curve for you? I think um, the problem was the facilities, wild horses and steel cattle yards. You know, and it's just a a very very poor combination you know and and really having to change the way that you operate you know because i was sort of used to quiet you know handled horses and you'd have lovely rubber encased sand round yards and you you'd go out to lake nash in the northern territory and you'd be breaking in these incredibly wild horses in steel cattle yards and to keep them in one piece, you really need to, you know, be so, so careful. Because, what uh, was something that you changed, that you picked up from working with wild horses, having, you know, having to be more careful? Uh, what were some other things that you thought you had to put more focus on or do a bit differently than what you've been doing with Harry? Um. So many things, so many things. Um, I think what I ended up doing an awful lot off the pony. Mm. Uh, everything that I would, I, I sort of got pretty good. I had a great pony. I've still got him. We we just put him in a paddock today. He's 23 or four years old. And um, oh, actually, he would have been the second one. But I I did a lot off the pony. And um, I could saddle them up off the pony. I could put a roller on off the pony. I could mouth them back, you know, back when that was sort of what I was doing. And everything off the pony because um, they would just be so much more accepting with another horse there. Right. And, yeah. And I, like, um, I think um, I, I used to do everything off the pony. I'd I'd lasso them and then I'd come in and and um, get them moving their hind quarter away and then change sides. I'd rub them all over off the pony. Sort of had a little bit to do with. I don't know if I'd met Ray Hunt then. Um, I might have seen him at a clinic or two working them off the pony. Harry, of course, worked them off the pony as well. But when they're super wild, it was just a great way to make some grounds. You know, and I'm, every mob would have an eight-year-old untouched horse in it that just missed the breaker the year before because it was hiding <laughs> under a tree or it was lame or it was in the back paddock or or what used to happen sometimes was um, management would change on a cattle station and uh, a guy who was keen on motorbikes would come in and so everyone would be mustering cattle on motorbikes and then what had happened is um, that manager would go and then a, a fellow who went, no, when, you know, I don't like motorbikes. They stir the cattle up too much. We want horses. And they'd bring these horses in that had been bushed out the back paddock, you know. Uh-oh. And I'd go to some of these places where they'd all be six and seven and eight-year-old. And uh, so, yeah, some really wild horses. And, and working them off the pony was just the, the key to success. I could get on these horses. I could saddle them up, turn them loose. and 
let them get moving around with the saddle and then I'd lasso them again, get a halter on them, step off my pony without even touching the ground, have them sort of snigged up to him and then step onto the young horse and send the pony off and the, you know, the young horse or not so young would follow the pony around and uh, yeah, that, that way I could, I could get a bit done. Yeah. Where did you learn to lasso? Was that with Harry or was that just out of necessity up on the station? Um, I, I could actually do it as a kid. Uh, I just spent a lot of time with a rope in my hand and just wanted to be a cowboy, you know. And um, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm pretty good. I, I, I don't ever use one anymore and I sort of gave it away. I... I um, gave it away years ago but I, I'm you know it, I'm not good at many things but I can throw a rope yeah. and a half hit for that matter too because that was something that Jim Wilton would do also is he'd lasso the horse and then he'd flick his wrist and throw a half hit onto its nose you know and so I had to learn how to do that and uh, it's a great little party trick to do and so you're basically able from 10 or 15 feet away able to put a halter on the horse just by that flicking the Bloody oath, that would have um, that would have helped you up in the territory. Yeah, yeah, absolute, and um, it's a great tool. It's great to be able to do because some of those horses are so evasive. They, you know, they do not want you touching them. Um, and so to be able to, yeah, to be able to get a rope on them like that and and half hitch that nose is is a a wonderful tool for that situation, but I really seriously hope I never have to be mm. in a situation where I need to use it again. You know, it's, um, and there's better ways of doing it. There's, um, there's bit... one, you know, everything as we're always moving forward. There's always progress and, and, uh, there's some really simple ways of catching a horse now that probably we didn't know about then or the vast majority of people weren't aware of. And, um and so what are those easier ways of, of catching a horse because i know that you know I, like i'll have people uh ring me up or message me hey i want i want uh i want to drop my horse off for training when suits you and i'll, I'll just say i just say oh well you know drop it off 10 o'clock monday morning for example and they go okay well i'll just it just depends if i can catch it or if it just depends if i can get on the float but um yeah start with the catching you know what a what are some tips that you give people to help with catching catching their horses? Well, look, there's there's a couple of different types of scenarios there. Like if the if the horse is as wild as a March Hare and you can't get a hand on it, um, it's a little different to one who's just an evasive horse who doesn't want to be caught. Um, and I guess both of them. The success I've had with using food is uh, been a great a great part of my learning how to incorporate food into the training mm. and as far as yeah for both you know for both those things there's a wonderful um group of people they're in arizona i think and they call themselves mustang camp and they're on youtube and i think they're on facebook and then i think they're got to be pushing 70 if they're not pulling it this old couple and they're there taming mustangs, and they've just they just have a um, a bag of loosened hay they use, and they use positive reinforcement to catch the horses. And so, 
third's just a great great way to catch a horse it, it really is um and even a mate of mine we just sent a horse back uh, rick wilson a lot of people would know of rick and he showed me a thing years ago he, rick's a smoker and he pulls the the plastic off the cigarette packet and rubs it together and the horse goes oh the bread bag that's you know <laughs> over. um and so if you if you haven't got food in your hand then if you can quite often be prepared for to, a long walk if you're in a big paddock you know yeah um, but yeah wild wild horse or just evasive that the food's a go for catching them um it's an interesting learning curve working with food because there's you can easily make a cookie monster out of a horse <laughs> you know and you don't want that i've done that they've done that paid, paid the price um and the key to that is not using such high value food like licorice or licorice will create a cookie monster in no time but that lower value food that's still good stuff like the mustang camp for example they just use looks like good quality loose and hay and it's it's not top shelf but a lot of horses will go oh yeah i'll have some of that that'd be great so food's a great thing also for a touchy horse to win he's to really win his heart if he's haunted if he's a real worried horse food's a key i found yeah Food's the key, the key to catching me as well, mate. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Exactly. We would like to thank one of our sponsors of the podcast, Leader Equine. Based in Victoria, Australia, Leader Equine can assist with all your horse care needs. They distribute leading global brands, including Horseware Island, TRM, PS of Sweden, Goodbye Flies, and Epona Grooming. Leader Equine have an array of products to help with all elements of horse care. The Horsewear Ice Vibe and Rambo Ionic products are perfect for supporting the recovery of competition horses. Their TRM range includes everything from joint supplements, digestive supplements and much more. All tried, tested and effective. I personally love the Horsewear Island rugs and I see the PS for Sweden saddlecloths out there and they look really schmick. Another thing like as if with the training of a horse with food the first thing to do is fill them up with loosened hay you know a horse who's got a full belly is a very different horse to what one who hasn't and what you'll often see and i've tried this and you know each horse is different but when you're feeding a horse with your hand a young horse who hasn't had a lot of experience eating out of their hand you'll often get the nibble nibble chomp you know, and you've got to watch your fingers because it's nibble, nibble, hunk. You know, and they're trying to get the whole thing. They just don't have great table manners to start with. But when you throw that horse a couple of biscuits of hay and let him finish that off and then start working with some food, he's a totally different, different creature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And so I'm sure... Um... You know, station life would have been would have been uh, you're very character building and, and interesting, but it probably yeah you did what 14 years you said, 14 years on stations. I used to start in southwest Queensland. I'd go up into the Gulf Country, and then 
um, back down through the Northern Territory, into the Kimberley. Um, we'd do five or six places in the Kimberley and come back through the Northern Territory and back, back in and do a second round on some of those Queensland places. And yeah, I used to do sometimes 180, 200 horses a year, but keeping in mind, you only spend 10 days on them. So, uh, it's not like spending the six weeks on them. It's 10 days and then they go into the stock camp and they go into work. So, yeah. So you got to get things happening. Uh, oh, a, yeah. Time. And I tell you, when I first started, like I first started going on cattle stations in 1989, 1990, something like that. And there were some real great old ringers who had lived that life their whole time. But towards the end of my time, there was a lot of kids from the North Shore of Sydney who just watched too many episodes of McLeod's Daughters and uh, didn't have much of, a, much of an idea. And what ended up, well, what, what you had to deal with, with was this huge gap that you tried to bridge. Wild horse, inexperienced kid, 10 days. Far out. Yeah. Uh, but I learned so much. I learned so much on those, you know, in that time. Um, I rodeoed when I wasn't doing the work on the stations and also would come down and, and be breaking in gallopers and polo ponies and so on in New South Wales during the summer because I wouldn't be out there during summer. When that's yeah. the season up there. Yeah, that's right. And, it's, you know, stinking hot and not, not my cup of tea. Yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. And so, when you when that when that time came to an end, you know, what was your plan then, or did you see some other job opportunities that you wanted to pursue? I uh, ended up having a property at Milton there at, at Milton on the south coast. It was um, where I where I'd grown up, and I set up a facility there, breaking in the pre-training gallopers and taking on a lot of. Um, horses for the general public and I think I was there for seven years I met a very pretty girl who seven or eight years later I think I walked away with a bag full of dirty clothes and a saddle <laughs> <laughs> as you do and uh, but uh, you know we had two beautiful kids one of them's coming to work with me tomorrow which is fabulous and uh, yeah uh, Milton was yeah broken a lot of horses there and uh, it was a beautiful beautiful part of the world and um and yeah once you'd finished up on the stations you know I'm sure your horses the horses were the biggest educators up there uh, you, and yeah you, you know you had Harry early on and JD Wilton was very inspiring you know who would you go to for breaking in advice or inspiration you know, later um, on. Well, at the, at Milton there, I ran a clinic, for a Ray Hunt clinic. And um, Ray came and, again, it just barketed down. It poured rain. And um, anyway, it was, uh, we got it done. And Ray said, come on over, come, you know, he invited me over to the States. And so I travelled around with Ray for three, three or four months doing clinics over there. Um and that was just a phenomenal experience. He was a, you know, like Ray um, has been called the most influential horseman on the planet. 
And I think the reason why that is, is he was the guy who invented clinics. Yeah. Okay? The first one to run clinics. And, of course, he, he learned from Tom Dorrance, who was just a freak of nature from what I can gather. But Ray was able to take what Tom was doing, to see what Tom was doing. Um, and, like, Tom is the type of guy who, apparently talking to Ray, uh, one story was where they have brandings. They have, like, a communal branding. So if you've got 80 cows and calves, all your neighbours will come over and brand your calves. But it's all done on horseback. They lasso the calves. They drag them to the fire. You've got a ground crew who hold the calves and brand them and castrate them, ear tag them and that. And so there's a handful of fellas on horses roping these calves and dragging them to the to the ground crew. And apparently Tom Dorrance has come over this one day and asked the cow boss of that ranch what horse he could ride. And he said, oh, that brown horse over there. And so he went and caught this brown horse and saddled it up and started dragging calves to the fire with it. And then at Smoko, they, he said, hey, no, no, wrong horse. That thing's a bronc. It's going to the rodeo. <laughs> you know? and, and so he was able to come in under the radar, create a connection with the horse and get the job done. And I think Ray Hunt was able to see what Tom was doing. And Ray Hunt then took that information to the world and from there you've got pretty much anyone whose last name is horsemanship uses a derivative of of the of that system yeah uh, so yeah. right yeah traveling with right amazing and and a great just a an amazing time to and so what were the the format of those clinics i've se- i've only seen some some short videos it seemed like you'd have people come in for breaking clinics and you know he'd end up working some pretty rank horses you know that he's only seen he's only just had a little glimpse at and getting him going good in a short space of time yeah so what would happen there'd be a colt starting in the morning and horsemanship in the afternoon and they'd be t- two different classes and day one would be catching and saddling the colts day two you'd be riding them day three they'd have the bridle on day four would be riding them out of the yard into the arena or the paddock and it was yeah amazing what he could get done by doing so little that was what i learned from ray is how little you need to do uh to get the the job done and then the afternoon would be uh, the horsemanship clinic. And I think I was thinking about horsemanship today. And, and as far as to put that into human terms, I think it would have to almost be having good manners. You know, if it was human to human, it would be having good manners and asking first before you take and then saying thank you afterwards. Because um, that's sort of basically what, Ray would talk about is is asking with a, a what he called a soft feel so not firm at all it's just a suggestion almost and then if you needed to increase that to get the job done then that would 
happened, but the, the initial part was asking with a a suggestion, a really soft um, yeah, suggestion, so that at the end game, your horse was operating on that off that softness. And and that's basically what Ray was teaching. And he did this, a lot of this had to do with getting down to the horse's feet, understanding that it was the feet that controlled the horse and moving in time with the horse's feet with the with your hands on the reins when the foot is in the air, you would be redirecting, speeding up or slowing down a foot. Um, and a, that was a lot of Ray's message, which came from Tom Dorrance, which was to control, mm. to, to, yeah, to operate the horse through the feet, through its feet, which are clearly what causes the horse to move. Yeah. I, funny you say that. I, it reminded me, I was speaking to a lady who, she um, she went through Sandra. She went through the Pirelli system, and yep. you know, quite handy. But she she said Ray came to the clinic out around the Canberra area years ago, and there was all these all these people there, and some dressage people, and some people that fancy helped themselves as riders. And she said they were all whinging because Ray literally had them trotting around for two days trying to figure out what legs were moving at what time without them looking down you know yes. calling out the diagonals really getting in time with the horse's movement so that they could um you know ask the horse to do something at an appropriate time yeah absolutely and and uh, the thing about the thing about ray he, he was so cool he was as cool as fonzie and he just had the right answer at the right time and uh I remember somebody saying to him once, I think we were in Oregon, and somebody said, Ray, this is a lot like Pirelli stuff. And I just went, oh, my God. You know, cause, <laughs> and he, he said, who? And the lady said, Pat Pirelli. <laughs> I've never heard of her. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, but, you know, but with that too, like the Pirelli system came from Ray and Tom as did so much of the horsemanship and what Pirelli's done for horsemanship in the world is phenomenal. It's, it's, it's opened people's eyes. I, I'm not a subscriber. However, I, I see that the benefit of it and what it's done for horses across the planet is, is phenomenal. And pretty much, I think if you, well, Pat Pirelli is constantly quoting Tom and quoting Ray and, and that's how it's sort of the trickle down effect. It's gone to Buck Brannaman. It's gone to um, pretty much anyone who, whose last name is Horsemanship. Mm. That stuff started with Ray and Tom. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, like like you're not a subscriber to Pirelli, but I can see uh, some of the benefits there. And, and I think it certainly gets a bad rap just because it's such a big uh, pro method. And, you know, any it can be done badly and it can be done well. And when it's done badly... It's not the not the person doing it badly that gets a, you know, the exactly negative. Exactly. Oh, this Pirelli's bad. Um, Correct. Correct. You know, yeah. I'd be bad. It would be a bad system if someone looked at me trying to do it because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think on a whole, anyone who's really put any time and effort into it, they've improved 
immensely. You know, it's 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 a format that is teachable and learnable. And uh, Ray and Tom were very cryptic. Yeah. Someone would ask them a question and they'd reply with some cryptic answer that the person would be thinking about for the next year. And so they'd have to go back to the, the following year to the next clinic just to try and work that out, you know. So, yeah. But, uh, very great. Very I think is it is Bill Dorrance's book. Uh, I was reading some of that and he just talks about slow riding, slow riding and just slowing everything down so that you can really focus on those finer details. And I think that, like you said, came across a bit in, you know, his answers are a bit slow and you've really got to slow down and think about it, you know, no rushing into it. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because as when I finished up with Ray, we're at the game ranch in British Columbia and um, I said, have you got any final advice for me? He said, yeah, slow down. <laughs> and it's great advice. It really is. Um, anything done in haste isn't done for the benefit of the horse. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a Dr. Shelley Appleton quote, but, uh, but I remember it quite well. And so you mentioned uh, in one of your previous conversations, you had a bit of a animal animal road show. I, don't, I can't remember the term, uh, but but a bit of an outback extravaganza when you're out at Burke. Tell us a little bit about that and how that came to be. Yeah, well, I guess um, that was just after horse flu, and I got a role at the Australian Stockman's Hall of Fame in Longreach, and I ran a show there for tourism. Um, for four years at Longreach, we had working dogs. I had a team of working bullock, which uh, oxen is another term. So eight big steers that we would pull a log into the arena with and load that log onto a logging jinker, just like they did all all the way along the coast here. Bullock teams were everywhere along the well. They were, you know, they were the semi-trailers of Australia before the combustion engine i had mm. camels i had trick horses um and it was a, yeah it was a funny show we'd start i used to start my day leaping from a from a platform onto a camel whose name was <laughs> alice the camel and as i'm going as and as soon as my ass had hit the saddle alice would break into a gallop and i'd come over the hill and as i'd come over the bit of a rise i'd hit play on my iPhone and the William Tell Overture would start playing. That's how I used to start my day. And we'd have some, you know, big audiences there. People, grey nomads flock to Longreach and and to Burke. Um, the, where, I, yeah, I ran the show. We did it for oh, probably eight years off and on. Or during the tourist season, and uh, I'd be working with horses during the the summer months as, again. Um, but I had, yeah, I think did over a thousand shows, and it was great fun. It, um, it was something that I always wanted to do again. I think that influence of Jimmy Wilton and old Harry always talking about the this they came up in circus and buck jump shows, real sort of old old school entertainment and. Yeah, I, I had a great time doing that. Never How'd made you get, 
opening the the camels, you know, where, like where did you pick that up, or did you just sort of wing it when you got there? Uh, yeah, I went out to a, a place at Mill Middleton, which is between Bullia and Longreach, and bought the first camel, Alice, and then we bought the second camel, Daphne, at a at the camel races at Winton. And my girlfriend at the time taught Daphne how to paint using clicker training. And so Daphne had come galloping in behind Alice and she'd uh, have a buck around. She was a real funny camel. She'd rare and buck and carry on in front of the audience. And they thought that was great. And then while I'm talking about camels and explorers and about John Ainsworth Horrocks, who was the only explorer ever to be shot and killed by his own camel, um, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Like, that sounds sounds like a bit of a somber story. Yeah, yeah, and it's a true story that he was he was loading his his musket, you know, with the old sort of the old style of loading where they'd force the, Yeah, yeah, and the camel jumped up, and the buckle on the pack saddle caught on the trigger of the gun, and it blew his fingers off. Which, when you're, you know, twenty six days camel ride into the outback, is no penicillin. No. <laughs> I might be telling, you know, the story of that type of thing. And um, this camel, Daphne, the, my girlfriend at the time, Karen, would be holding a canvas and Daphne would be holding a paintbrush in her teeth, painting the canvas. And uh, we used to auction those those paintings off at the end of the show. Uh, but, yeah, we had something like 36 animals and including the sheep. We did a sheep dog demo and started, you know, it was all funny, all uh, tried to get people laughing as much as we could and, uh, yeah, had a great time doing it. I would, yeah, I'd love to see the the paintings, Daphne's paintings. I'm sure they're, you know, up there with Picasso. Well, they were abstract expressionism, you know, so a bit different style to Picasso, but they were... Uh, Absolutely, yeah. We we actually. Oh no, that was a horse. We taught a horse to paint as well, and we sold one of those paintings for seventeen hundred dollars. It was a it was a drought relief auction. Um, but yeah, when that yeah, it's, it's a great thing to teach an animal to paint and a horse in particular, and for a clicker training, to hold the paintbrush in their teeth and to target the the canvas. Yep. And, yeah, you can get some really, really wonderful paintings happening, especially if you paint the canvas, at, you know, a shade of ochre first and then use some bright, vibrant colours um, on the brush. And they just get such a kick out of it. They pick, you know, you can have five or six different brushes in different pots of paint. And they pick up the brush and target the canvas. And by the end of it, you've got a fantastic bit of bit of art. Very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. And so... Recently, I've seen some of uh, you. You know, you've been posting quite a lot of videos lately, and I think one of your one of your more recent things is you know three hundred and sixty five days of horse zenship. And yeah. um, tell us a little bit about how you came up with that idea. I think it's been you know fantastic putting a bit of you know good information out there, uh, and what your plan is with that. Look, it's. Uh... It's something that came up. There was a, a girl called Lucy Churches who's doing a similar thing. I think hers is a more a, a discussion about her her journey with her horses. 
Um, no, I just sort of thought to myself, well, I want to share what I know. And social media is clearly the, the key for that these days. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I've got a lot of, lot of people who have commented on the videos I've loaded it previously and so keep it going. And I just thought, well, it's a bit of a challenge, a bit of a commitment and commitment's never been my strong point, but, um, I'm, you know, I'm giving it a good nudge. We're up to day 21 and they're just little snippets, little short videos of what, yeah, of what, what ever I sort of come across that day. I'm sure there'd be, there'd be plenty of things, plenty of challenges you come across. And, and one thing that you've done recently at, after a few videos is you've instigated the buy me a coffee. And tell us, tell us where did you get that idea from and what coffee do you drink when we buy you one? Well, it's uh, one of the, um, not a listener, one of the viewers messaged me and suggested that I put that up because a few people had said oh look can we make a donation we're loving your your content can we make a donation and this lady suggested i click on this buy me a coffee app and um yeah i just put the put the link at the bottom of the the post and people can buy a five dollar coffee if they if they like and that's fabulous because it i don't don't tell anyone this charlie but i don't actually buy coffee with it i probably buy hay instead <laughs> or, um, yeah. yeah it's a it's a great little idea it's kind of like a patreon but not quite and um yeah it's 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 going great i'm really happy with it i guess it's hard because you know a lot you know to get your name out there on social media you know you, a lot of people need to put out videos and this and that but it, like, like you said it's a commitment it's a lot it's time out of your day and um, you know you got you're sharing, you know, salt's good information. So I think it's um, yeah more than I think it's a great idea to at least get at least get a little bit back for that. Yeah, well, there's so much missing these days as far as where do people learn? You know, um, there's yeah, there's not there's not the horseman down the down the road like when I was growing up. There was you know you. As I said, there was a farrier behind me, a racehorse trainer in front, a horse breaker to the left of me, and everywhere there were people with horses, and we all spent time with them. So I think it'd be a, just a shame, just say I'm walking along tomorrow and a piece of space junk falls out of the sky and takes me out. It'd be a shame to take what I know with me. And I've spent a lot of time and driven a lot of kilometres, and um, yeah, to, to learn what I know, it'd be a shame not to share it. And you started, you started doing clinics more recently and you're doing them in a slightly different format to what people are normally used to. You're doing them as uh, pay, pay what you can clinics. That's a, you know, yeah. who, where do you get that idea from and how's it pay working out? Pay what you're able, okay? And, you're able. Uh, so the idea, but I've wanted to do this for years and years and people have said, no, you can't do that, people judge you on what you're worth if you charge 750 a clinic people will flock to it because they think you know oh wow look how much this guy charges he must be amazing um 
but the pay what you're able came to me because of the three Rays in my life, okay? So, and they were Ray Morton, my next-door neighbour as a kid, who was the racehorse trainer who put, gave me so much time and knowledge. And, you know, with, without ever ever questioning how much time and effort he put into teaching me as much as he could. Again, we mentioned uh, Ray Hewitt, who was Marie Hewitt's dad, who was the instructor at the Pony Club. And at the time, as, as a young kid, you never really think about it, but every Saturday, Mr. And, Mr. and Mrs. Hewitt were there and they gave so much time to all us kids in as, as pony club instructors across the country do, you know, but they just gave that information away. And then Ray Hunt, again, I never put my hand in my pocket when I was with Ray, you know, and these guys shared their information with me. It cost me nothing. And so I thought, well, it, you know, it'd be nice to share that, but of course we need to pay fuel and we need to pay insurances and we need to buy Buy, buy a coffee along the way, you know. Um, and so I've been doing the Pay What You're Able classes and they've been going really well. I'm really happy with them. And people aren't stingy um, at all. There's been some people, some people be the opposite and just I've had to say, hey, no, that's too much. That's silly. Don't be silly, you know. A, um, but we just start with some very simple basics and work our way up. And I love it. I, I'm trying to move away from being a horse trainer and I'd love to be a coach. And it's, it's a hard transition. And at the moment, I've just, you know, we're, we're packing up because I'm heading off to Scone tomorrow to go and teach 240 foals how to lead. Um, and so that's moving in the opposite direction of being a coach or a a teacher of what I know, but that's that's sort of how how the ball seems to roll sometimes. Yeah, it does. Two hundred over two hundred yearlings to teach how to lead. That's going to keep you on your toes. You're pretty experienced with handling young thoroughbreds, though. You've done done a lot down at other big studs like Bowness. What are what are some of the things you find when you handle so many foals? That you've got to how do you, how do you go about handling them when they're at such a basic level of handling? Um, I guess the big thing is we need to create a connection first of all, and once you've created the connection with the foal, then the world's your oyster. You know they'll, they'll do anything. It's just getting to a point where you can convince them that you are someone who can be trusted. And in order to do that, you've got to be able to get through the hoarseness of them, you know, because they just go, oh, there's a, there's a human there. Mum said they're no good, you know? And so you've got to, You've got to be able to get them gentle enough to then have them sort of go, okay, so I can go with you and everything's okay. And you go, yeah, yeah. And they go, what about what mum said? Don't worry about what mum said. Come with me. Come on. 
Um, but it's again, it's basic horsemanship that I use on the foals. We we get that hind foot stepping in front of the opposing hind foot, get some bend in the neck, some bend through the body. Forward is always such an important key, but it's with the foals, it's left and right before forward because they will go forward away from you. And if you don't have some left and right, if just say you're holding the lead rope and that foal says, I'm leaving you, I'm getting as far away from you as I can because that's what nature tells me to do. If you take hold of that rope on that halter when that foal is straight and rigid, you, you'll flip them over. Yeah. Okay, so getting the bend in the neck and the hindquarter moving over on the foals is just so crucial. And then the other thing that I do is I cover the eye. I come in and I'll repeatedly come in and cover the eye with my hand time and again to try and dull, not to try, it's very effective, in dulling the startle re response. Okay. Um, well, the eyes are similar to their, to their behavior. The, yeah. Yeah. The eyes are the trigger. The eyes a part of it, the brain actually and and when when you the foal gets very or not just foals but horses in general will get very triggered because of what they're viewing the world that they're viewing because the foal the horse's eye isn't consistent like ours we can look out across a landscape and everything's pretty consistent whereas the horse's eyes are not so much like that horse's eyes if he's looking down for example things are a little more magnified than if he's looking up so if he's looking up things are a little more telescopic okay so that he could be eating grass up to his eyes and he can look out around him to see what's about to get him things are very different for the horse when he's focusing on something with one eye, with his monocular vision, as opposed to when he is focusing on something with two eyes, that's his binocular vision. Um, there's no depth perception with monocular vision. He can't tell how far away something is with one eye. He can tell how far away something is with two eyes, but there's not a lot of accruity there. There's not a lot of focus. There's a point of focus, which is, quite often around 20 feet out this side is often blurry that the other side of that 20 foot is often blurry um the foal the horse's eye is they, they see pretty much in black and white apart from the color teal and the color yellow they're two of the colors that a horse will see and then also there's the um the night vision so a horse can see pretty well in the dark they've got something like 20 times more rods than cones in their eyes which means that those rods they pick up the light any light that's available to be picked up the, the rod in the eye can see that and so the horse can see quite well at night that's one of the reasons a horse won't often walk into water because they see the the light reflecting off the water and it just looks more like an abyss than a puddle um and then there's a line between the monocular and the binocular which i call the block drive line 
and it's a real triggering point in the horse's eye. So anything approaching that line between monocular and binocular will trigger the horse when he's raw, when he's not had a lot of experience. Anything crossing that line will trigger him a lot further. So anything going from monocular to binocular will can really trigger the horse because it's two different pictures that they're seeing. If you could imagine the same object that people that somebody's looking at but painted by two different artists. That's the difference between binocular and monocular, which is why as you're trotting down the road, there might be an object off to the side of you. It's fine while you are approaching it. And then when it gets past two eyes and gets into the the focus of one eye, that horse will scoot sideways 20 feet. Okay. And so getting the horse to a point where he is not concerned about these differences that are occurring in the world that he views, that's how we get the, ho the horse and the foal gentle. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a, sure something a lot I could, what's that? Yeah, it's something that might take a bit more than 10 minutes to explain, but it's um, well, making a lot of sense to me because, you know, I know there's been plenty of times where I'll, I'll ride past something and the horse won't be too bad and when it's seeing it just out of the side. And then you go to turn back the other way. And as you do that, I've turned towards the spooky object, not necessarily close to the object. So that then, yeah, the horse then is all of a sudden looking at it with both eyes and and that is when they'll uh, sometimes that is when they'll go oh at that moment they'll startle and sort of scoot backwards or something yeah yeah and why that is is if that's within that 20 feet that object will be blurry okay if two horses were talking one would say to the other what's that over there and the horse would say i have no idea <laughs> and the, horse, the first horse would say well let's just steer well clear of it then and the yeah. reason he's got no idea is See, we can read a text on our phone and then we can look up 100 metres away and see where, you know, if I said, hey, Charlie, did you shut that gate? You could read that text and then you could look up and see the gate. And the reason we can do that is because the lenses in our eyes contract and expand quite well because of the muscles that are attached to those lenses. The horses don't have those muscles that can contract and expand the lens in its eye. And so, so much of what the horse views is just a blurry expanse. Um, and so then it has to work with, you know, the rest of its senses, its ears, its smell, its touch to make sense of its world. And that's how it um, receives its information through the, the multi-senses. But the horse we're looking for, the horse everyone wants is, is, is that horse who doesn't, isn't bothered when it can go from focusing on something it's it's trotting towards with its binocular vision with its telescopic binocular vision but just say that was a rock on the ground and then you come past that and suddenly that that object is quite larger and there's no because the horse is now focusing down and using the magnet uh, the magnified element of its bifocal vision and then it also doesn't have its depth perception 
And so it's going to scoot sideways because that thing suddenly got larger and it doesn't know how big it is or um, how close it is. And that horse, that horse who doesn't care when these different images come to it, that's the horse we want. That's the horse everyone wants. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You talked there about the the other senses and I, I know I've watched your video called the boom and, and that's certainly another sense uh, that I'd like you to explain a little bit about how you came across what you describe as the boom. Cause that's, you know, very multi-sensory, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So what, what I, the first sort of bit of an inkling of something going on that was more field than view was working with the foals and seeing the mares and the foals lick and chew at the same time. So, and I'm talking about like when a horse licks and chews about the tongue coming out of its mouth, say an inch initially, and then a bit more and a bit more. And, and then they, um, you know, the tongue goes back inside the mouth. And when the mare and foal were doing this, at precisely the same time. And I'm going, well, that's not a visual cue. There's something else going on there. And I had felt this on the cattle stations years years before. And so what happens is um, the way I work with the foals, I, I, I will send them forward and then I will turn them back to me. So they will go from looking at me with one eye then looking at me with two eyes. And as I just said, anything approaching the, the line between the two, monocular and binocular, which I call the block drive line. If you're in front of that line, you're blocking the horse. If you're behind it, you're driving them. Anything approaching that line triggers them. Anything crossing it triggers them further. And so with what I do, I send them out on the circle and then I bring them back to face me. Out on a circle, bring them back to face me. And Often when they go out on that circle, they're up. They're in fright flight. And I bring, I kick the hindquarter out and we bring the two eyes back to me. And I do this again and again and again. And so when that happens with the horse, we've taken away his ability to survive. Because flight is his ability to survive. If there is something faster than the animal that can, when it's in flight, just say we're galloping along on the savannah and there's a predator chasing the horse and it gets around in front of the horse. It goes from one eye to two. That horse would go, you've got me. I'm done. I'm finished. My flight response is no good to me. I can fight, but my number one life-saving device, which is flight, has just been weighed and measured and found wanting. And so what happens with the foals when this, when I send them forward and then turn them back to face me, that's exactly what happens. They go forward in flight. And then when I turn, turn them back to face me, that, that flight, which could have sent them a hundred meters in 0.0 seconds, all that energy has to go somewhere. And when you're standing in front of the horse, you feel it. And the what happens is the foal goes, oh, you've got me. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm history. And then it goes, actually, hang on. No, wait. I'm all right. 
it's okay. I didn't get hurt. Oh, I can, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. So all that net energy, which could have propelled it hundreds of meters in a short period of time, it leaves the foal. It leaves the horse. It's not just foals. It's horses do this as well. And, and when you're standing close enough, that fear leaving the horse triggers your fear. And it triggers butterflies in your stomach. And what the butterflies are is blood leaving your digestive system so that you can flee the threat. The, the blood from your digestive system goes to your heart and your muscles so that you can flee the threat. That's, that's what's happening when you feel the sensation of butterflies. And so the fear leaves the fold and it goes into the person standing in front of it when you are exposed to it enough. And I always say with the boom that until you feel it, you won't feel it. And once you feel it, you can't not feel it. But it's not some hippy-dippy mambo-jahambo. Um, I've had it explained to me by quite a few people who know their onions. And they've said, okay, well, this is what you're feeling is electromagnetic energy. And I'm not going to go into it because I'm not, I don't want to be a, a pseudo intellectual and try and explain what's happening on the cellular level. Um, but I've, I, I can, I can point this at people. I can take the phone and I can point it at people now and, um, send, send this, boom of energy at them and and again it triggers you into fright flight not your mind so much but your body um i've shown it to to vets i've shown it to uh warwick schiller came to work with me for a couple of weeks we showed warwick um blew his blew his socks off um i showed an irish mate of mine a little while ago and he goes i don't second know if i like that i <laughs> would <laughs> Also, that you talked about the you've got that release that the boom where that nervous energy is released, and then you also talk about that there's a bit of a, a bubble, and this sounds it's very similar to this concept that a friend in New Zealand, Kelly Wilson, talked about about that you feeling when you are crossing the threshold where they weren't comfortable near them, you'd feel that nervous energy a bit too. Is that? Well, there's a couple of different ways that it can happen. Like I, I call that there's the bubble boom where you just feel that nervous energy leaving the horse and it's a slow, steady release and you can just feel it. It can sort of make you feel a little nauseous sometimes. The boom that I talk about is if it was on a scale, like on a graph, it would peak and then fall all of it, yeah, pretty suddenly. And as you go along with the horse, like it's basically the I, the simplest way of saying it is it's a nervous energy leaving the horse. And if you're standing close to it, you, you will feel that nervous energy because that nervous energy, that potential energy could have propelled that animal a great distance in a very short period of time and when that doesn't occur, it has to go somewhere. And so that's what you feel. As you go along with the horse throughout the, the week or 10 days that you're working on them, it becomes less and less and less and less. And it's a great gauge of where the horse is. And it, it happens four seconds before the horse licks and chews. Three to four seconds. I can, you know, I've, on the film, I've got 
which I did last year of the foals, time and again I go, there's the boom. Three or four seconds later, the mare and foal are licking. And time and time again. And the coolest thing is it bounces off rubber. Okay, and people who are listening to this go, well, this guy's off his trolley. Okay. <laughs> um, you're working with always these young thoroughbreds are generally um, working in a, a nicely rubbered round yard with sand on the floor. Are you listening to the James Daly? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Um, <laughs> so when when the horse releases that nervous energy facing that rubber, that nervous energy bounces back off the rubber and will you can feel it again. Um, but again, it's been explained. It's not some hippie thing. It's it can be explained by science, as and it's electromagnetic energy that leaves the animal. And and if you are exposed to it enough, you'll you'll feel it. Well, there's a lot more people sort of talking about it these days, and um, yeah, it's getting that, getting the miles and getting the timing right and and being of the right mindset i guess to be emotionally available well that's true um i kind of think it's like a bit of a build-up like a we are so bombarded with information and 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 if we're not got the um radio going we, we've grown up with the television we might have grown up under a flight path we might have grown up next to our busy highway and we're very good at blocking out sensory input and that's why eventually when you're constantly exposed to this sensation it starts to make its way through and you, you eventually will start to feel it and I've had people work for me for four or five or six or ten days and I go did you feel that no did you feel that no did you feel that oh they go, oh is it like a little tingling in your neck Yes, well, it can be, yeah, you know, because it, it can cause you to have goosebumps or your hair can stand up on end. Anything that sort of is a bodily uh, expression of fear or, or of nervousness. So it, it'll trigger your adrenaline to fire and um, might yeah, feel nauseous. You might be up on your toes. It's, yeah, it's, it's um, something that we block out. But then after a period of time, after enough exposure, you start to feel it. It's like if somebody was banging in fence posts with a tractor across the hill and yet somebody said to you, geez, that's annoying. You'd say, what's annoying? You'd say that bloody bloke on the tractor banging in those posts. And once once you'd heard it and felt it, you go, yeah, you're right. Mm. But until until you do, until you sort of go, oh, hang on, I can feel that, you won't feel it. Yeah, certainly fascinating. I think, uh, you know, you've given us some, some interesting information and one of the things I like in your videos, you know, it's only it's only something small. Uh, it's funny. I, th- I find it a bit funny as well is uh, you've often quoted saying, lunge long, live long. Um, and I, I'm sure you're not one that just lunges horses around, but I think it's it's probably more of a, metaphor for you know doing your preparation uh well is there any other mottos or sayings that you'd like to give to the listeners oh well 
I don't know. Um, you've got me on the spot there. But lunch long is lunch long, live long, is pretty much my motto. And you're right. I don't mean tie the horse's head down and lunge it around to the left for three hours. Or so um, what I mean by that is it came from Harry Meyer, the concept, and that was to get the horse animated before you get on it. You know, and if if that's lunging it to the left and back to the right and back it up a few steps, bring it forward, hop it over a little 44-gallon drum laying on the ground, get the horse animated, get it moving. Don't just saddle it up and get on. Um, because that they're two different horses, aren't they? That horse is warmed <laughs> up. Absolutely. It's a different horse to the one you've, you've saddled up and, and got on. Um, and that's where that's where you'll you'll get bucked off, you know. That's where you'll get hurt. Is just saddling that thing up and getting on it. And I've seen it time and again. Uh, I've I've experienced it myself. And yeah, the more you can get that horse animated and supple and listening and giving and licking and chewing and you know absorbing what you're putting out. The, the happier, the better the experience you're going to have on that ride. Whereas the, getting back to those cattle station days, those early cattle station days, some of those, like those guys used to get those old Baku polies and they'd saddle those horses up just on daylight, five or ten of them, and uh, run that girth into them. And sometimes they'd grab hold of an ear as they swung on those horses. It'd be just like Mount Isaac <laughs> wow. Rodeo. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I know. Any time uh, I've been bucked off, I sort of could give myself an F for the groundwork and and preparation I've done. Yeah, I try not to do an awful lot of. You know, I'm 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 pushing fifty now. I'm actually pulling it, and so I'm not trying to break in. You know, a hundred horses a year. But my process with every horse every day is, first of all, they are loose in the round yard and we do some round penning. And then I'll put a halter on them and we'll do some groundwork. And then I'll put the saddle on and we'll do more groundwork with the with the saddle. And then we might go back to some round penning with the saddle. And then I'll get on them. And that I, I always go, well, there we go. We've lunged long. Let's live long. <laughs> no, that's fantastic, Luke. I, I know your time's very valuable and very grateful that we could get you on here. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your Facebook page, Luke Thomas Horse Zenship. Love the name. Is yep. there any way that we can reach out to you if we need to come to one of your clinics? Oh, look, every, pretty much everything's on that page, on that Bookface page. And, um, yeah, I call it horse zenship. Firstly, there's only, I think, the vast majority of people working with horses are women. So to call it horse manship, I think, is goes against the grain a little. And uh, I like the sound of the word zen. You know, it's sort of a, a, makes me think of how you should work with a horse, sort of slowly and methodically and and uh, repeatedly. So yeah. I couldn't agree more. I've, I've, um, and I'll be, I'll be honest. I've, I've stolen your saying lately: lunge long, live long. So thank you very much. Uh, good on you, mate.
Thank you.